Hey everyone, my name is Will Malice and I'm an assistant news editor for the Massachusetts Daily Collegian, the only student-run print and online newspaper here on the UMass campus, serving the community since 1890, and this is the official podcast for the news section of the Collegian called the Collegian News Hour. We're recording today's episode on Sunday, March 1st, but this, like every installment of our podcast, we release at 8 o'clock every Tuesday morning on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. So you're in the studio with me to recap the stories we have covered over the past week. Are the rest of the news team, if you want to introduce yourselves. I'm Cassie McGrath, Assistant News Editor. Catherine Eston, Assistant News Editor. I'm Abby Sharpentier, the News Editor. Sophia Gardner, Assistant News Editor. And I'm Irina Kostake, Assistant News Editor. Right, cool. So uh, for our first story this week, um, so some of you guys went to a uh, Bernie Sanders rally, if you want to talk about that. Yeah, so on Friday night, um, Irina, Abby, Catherine, and Anna from the op-ed section, I all went to a Bernie Sanders rally in Springfield. Uh, So we took a little road trip, and um, it was really a cool experience. We were in the press box area with other journalists, and so it was a very, like, I'd say upbeat environment in the room. A lot of people were really excited to be there. Uh, there were five opening speakers um, and and a performance from a banjo player at the beginning. Does anyone remember his name? Blinking. But yeah, so it was just really cool. And we were live tweeting, if you saw on Twitter. Yes, yeah, cool experience. It was definitely very interesting, first just hearing from a presidential candidate and seeing him in person, but um, the fact that he was here campaigning in Massachusetts specifically before Super Tuesday, which is, as we know, Elizabeth Warren's home state. So that was something that I had asked people about when I was trying to get quotes from people that were attending the event. And one girl who is a student at UMass told me that she really likes Elizabeth Warren, but she thought that um, Bernie has more of a chance of beating Donald Trump, um, which I think is kind of the rationale of him being here in general before Super Tuesday. So yeah, it was just very interesting seeing him here when him and Warren are kind of supposed to be somewhat united in terms of all the other candidates in the field. And I think it was also interesting to look at who was attending the rally. It definitely skewed lower, uh, but a few of the volunteers that came over and talked to us when we were in the press box or press area, uh, we're talking about they didn't understand why uh, Bernie's not doing well with older residents and older citizens. And I don't know if I can test to how he's doing the polls, but at least looking around the room, there were a lot of college students. I interviewed a couple high school students that were attending the event. Uh, and I'd say the average age was probably late 20s, 30s. And most of the speakers, too, even though they were state reps, local officials, uh, were probably all in their 30s. I also spoke to a couple other UMass students um, who said that they went to his rally in Keene. And it was a very different environment. Like, he had made similar points, the points that we've probably heard him make, like, a few times. Um but they said that he just was a lot more energetic, which I thought was interesting. And also I thought that he was really like appealing to the crowd. They were like really giving back to him. And uh, I think that probably made for like a more energetic rally. Do you think he tailored his speech to like a Massachusetts audience? Um, I don't want to compare specifically to other places because I'm not sure what speeches he's given where but I definitely noticed that there was a pretty big focus on um, education policy and I think Massachusetts is pretty one of the big issues here that we pride ourselves on is having such a good education system so I think maybe that was something that he did tailor but again I don't want to speak too much to the different speeches he's given in other places but I just know that that's something that stuck out to me. 
Um, also, the people who spoke before he went on included different, um, were from different organizations or represented uh, Massachusetts politics. So I think that kind of tied it all together. And he referenced their speeches um, when he talked about healthcare and education. Um, so everything was, of course, very well thought out and planned um, in order to accommodate to the needs or like the, the policies that people in Massachusetts care about. Um, but I would say that I think Bernie Sanders is the a type of candidate who is pretty consistent in what he has said and has has said throughout his whole career about what he wants to change about the infrastructure of the government. So I don't think he did anything that he like completely changed his outlook just to appeal to people in Massachusetts. I think that he is just in a more blue state favored here and probably more comfortable speaking out about these um, policy decisions. So in the lead up to Super Tuesday, Bernie has kind of been the only one who's come to uh, to Massachusetts. Uh, Elizabeth Warren might have done one, but what do you think the strategy for for Sanders having a rally here compared to going to, you know, maybe some other states? I can't remember if it was Cassie Arena that mentioned it, but because this is Warren's home state, it would definitely be very embarrassing for if she lost. Uh, I think I've read that she won't say whether it's a deal breaker if she doesn't win Massachusetts. And that's something her campaign definitely has to say. Uh, because if she said, oh, I'm going to win Massachusetts or else I'm dropping out and then she lost Massachusetts, be an awkward situation. <laughs> and the fact that Elizabeth Warren's avoiding saying that kind of shows that's what Bernie Sanders' strategy is going to be. I believe she held an event in Boston this weekend. But as far as I know, Sanders was the only one to come to an event in Western Mass. And especially in a race where he tends to be paired with Elizabeth Warren, saying, you know, they're both the more progressive candidates. They're both further the left. Uh, he definitely has a lot to gain if Elizabeth Warren were to lose supporters or if she were forced to drop out after losing her home state. So I, I'd assume that's a strategy. Can't say I've been in the room with his campaign strategists, but as a citizen of Massachusetts, that would be my take on it. So he was in Springfield on Friday night, and I believe on Saturday he was doing a rally in Boston at the Boston Common. So I think he's just trying to hit, like, all of the major cities. I feel like he maybe could have gone to, like, Central Mass, but for the most part, I feel like he covered a lot of, like, the bigger parts of the state. Yeah, personally, I'm really excited for Super Tuesday because I think that a lot of these questions you've been asking for the last year about this election will start to be answered. Like you just saw Tom Steyer drop out. I think it'll be hard for other candidates to stay in the race, potentially Elizabeth Warren after Super Tuesday. I think it's hard to tell, but I mean, I think in a state like Massachusetts, Bernie Sanders has a good chance of taking um, the most delegates. Uh, so for our next story, um, there's been uh, there's going to be a change in the Thanksgiving break. So, uh, Catherine, you wrote something on this? Sure. So this first came to my attention. There's a petition going around the campus to reinstate a full Thanksgiving break for the fall 2020 semester. So for new students or people who haven't experienced Thanksgiving break in the past, uh, UMass has a week-long Thanksgiving break, at least it has since fall 2016 meaning that after the end of classes on the Friday before Thanksgiving, students are free to leave campus. Especially if you're going out of state, that means you know you get to spend two weekends at home and the full week. Uh, however, in the fall of 2020, that will not be happening. Instead, only the Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of that week will be off. Uh, so it means Monday and Tuesday classes are mandatory and students will have to stay in the area for that extra, 
Uh, although it's two academic days, it does end up being four days once you count the Saturday and Sunday. Students have to stay in the Amherst area. Uh, so I talked to a few students who signed the petition and the student who came up with the petition. Most of them were out-of-state students. Uh, they talked about, you know, they have to drive home six, seven, eight hours. Uh, students on Long Island talked about they don't have direct transportation home. So for them, it's taking a bus into the city and then taking another bus to their hometowns. And they said they typically don't get to go home during the semester. You know, if you live an hour or two from campus, you can get in a car and drive home. Uh, but if you rely on parents to come and get you or taking public transportation or even flights, then you don't get to go home on an off weekend or even three-day weekends. And the Thanksgiving break is typically the only time they'll go home in the fall. Uh, so a lot of students were upset about that, saying they wanted the full break to be reinstated. And I reached out to the Academic Matters Council. Uh, so they decided on this calendar, I believe it was in 2018, because the Academic Matters Council votes on the new calendars every year for two to three years in advance. Uh, and the university registrar, Patrick Sullivan, said that he doesn't for foresee a scenario in which the university will change the upcoming calendar. Uh, and the reason it happens is because Labor Day is so late this year. It's falling on September 7th. That's the latest possible date it can be held. And there's a lot of opposition to starting the semester before that because they want to avoid establishing a precedent because that could mean other years the university starts in August. And it's also coordinating with the other five colleges. Uh, out of the other five colleges, Smith, Hampshire, and Mount Holyoke uh, have the same Thanksgiving break. They're only getting the three days. Uh, Amherst College has the full week off, and I couldn't get a clear answer how they managed to get the full week off and nobody else did. Um, but yes, so because of Labor Day, Christmas Eve falling earlier, and just the way all the mandatory state holidays, the reading day, five days of final panned out, they had to shorten Thanksgiving break by two days. I was really interested to find out that having a whole week off for Thanksgiving break is such a new thing and that up until 2016, we actually only had the actual holiday off and the day after it, I think, because it's interesting how fast that became a normality of having the whole week off and now having three days off seems like so little to us when before we only got two and that was just kind of accepted. Yeah, I can't imagine what the transportation would have been like when you have to leave after classes on the day before Thanksgiving. A few of the students I talked to said that they plan to just skip the Monday-Tuesday classes. I'm sure that'll be an issue the university deals with next year and fall 2021 when I believe this is happening again. I don't think the fall 2022 calendar has been released, uh, so I don't know if that would be reinstating the full week that year. But yeah, what you said, this is becoming a normality that everyone kind of expected the full week to happen. I was funny to see Facebook comments on the petition when it was going around and alumni of UMass who didn't remember the week ever existing. <laughs> People who graduated before 2016. I saying, oh, you guys are so spoiled. You don't know what it was like in the old days. Uh, so I wonder if that Fulbright is ever reinstated, how students will react to it, whether they'll think it's something new after only two years of losing it or whether we'll never see that again. Yeah, I know that this is one of like the few things that I've already encountered about having such a late Labor Day. I think it's like throwing off a lot of people's schedules um, for next year. And also, I think this is something that I mean, like a lot of students look forward to. And it's that kind of like dilemma that we report on a lot where we see like students understand that the university maybe doesn't have another option for scheduling, but it's still something that will directly impact their well-being at school just because I think that week I mean we all probably look forward to it because it's that okay you can take a breath they can like get back 
um, like organize myself and then go back to school, get ready, getting ready for finals. So it's something that like I've definitely depended on in my time here. Just speaking from a personal note, but I don't know, like it's it's kind of just like a tough scheduling thing. I just know that it'll be hard to be home only for a few days next year. And that reminds me of a point uh, a graduate student who was on the committee raised saying there isn't a lot of student participation in how these calendars are designed. And a lot of students are really confused by the bureaucracy at UMass of how are these decisions made. And before researching this article, I had no idea how the calendar was made. Uh, And one of the professors I emailed, who it turns out wasn't on the committee, but his name for some reason had been printed on the calendar, replied to my email and said, oh, I'd also like to know the answers to your question. (laughs) And, you know, that's somebody who'd been a professor here for several years. And I think it's not necessarily the university needs to be more transparent. But I do think they have to do a better job of informing people why decisions are made and how and making sure that information is freely available to everyone. Uh, And then also maybe they should take into consideration why are undergraduates on that calendar committee and at what point do they have to get students involved in that decision to change things like breaks or when holidays are held, what holidays should be included in the calendar and all of that. I thought it was interesting too how you mentioned in the article that they tried to cut um, the two weeks of ad drop into just one week. Do they provide a reason for that? Uh, So I didn't hear anything back on that from the registrar himself. I heard that from the member of the committee uh, who just remembered that that was something that happened and the SJ leadership intervened. Uh, But I'm not sure why that decision would have been made. It might have been to ease up. This is just an assumption. I have no background evidence on this, but I would think it might be to relieve the registrar's demands to shorten how much students can drop in and drop out of classes. And it could be a request from professors, possibly, uh, if students are joining in at the end of the second week of classes. Uh, I've seen my own classes. People will join on the last day of ad drop, but by that point, you know, we've already had an assignment due or they're behind three chapters of reading. And the professors having to accommodate that could be stressful. All right, cool. So uh, for our third story, um, this is about some new housing that's being built. Um, Cassie, you want to talk about that? Yeah, so this is a story I did with Wafi Habib, um, who's also part of our news team and on staff here. Um, so basically this semester, the university released a statement that they're going to start uh, soliciting plans to uh, reconstruct graduate and undergraduate housing referring to North Village and the Lincoln Apartments and then future plans for the undergraduate residential halls on campus. Um, so last semester um, the university sent out an email to the residents of North Village and Lincoln Apartments and um, this caused a lot of upset in the North Village community because it's family housing which means that it's really become like a place on campus where people gather and get to know each other and their children become friends. Um, And it's just like a a big community on campus. Um, So they wrote a a, a statement to the university basically asking for certain demands and they attended a town council meeting, which I covered last semester, which basically again addressed the university, their thoughts and concerns about this reconstruction. So I spoke to um, three administrators, um, including Ed Blagazewski, who's director of media relations, and he talked a lot about how the housing was constructed in 1972, and it's temporary housing, and there are a lot of infrastructure problems in the buildings. Um, so um, the university said that they have committed to these undergraduate, these graduate 
family housing students um, to say that they're going to basically grandfather them into the ho- the new housing where they'll be able to pay the same or um, similar rent, just the, the cost of inflation, um, if they are still students at the time that the construction finishes. Um, so the construction is starting in fall 2022 and should finish um, within the year. And then they also talked about the Lincoln Apartments and how that is like a one-year lease, essentially, so that um, the people that move out of there aren't as concerned, and they usually say, the administration said they usually find their own housing. Um, They also have used um, a North Village and Lincoln um, Student Advisory Committee so that they can reach out to students and see what they want. And then they also talked about how they have plans to reconstruct the undergraduate housing, which um, would include like Northeast Residential Area Central, um, Southwest, um, Sylvan. And so basically what their plan there is, is that they're going to build um, a 730-bed building, which um, will mean that they can tear down um, the buildings that currently exist and uh, relocate students into this building and into other residential areas. And then basically when that construction finishes, people can move back in there and then they'll start in another building. And this will include apartment-style living suites and um, just storm rooms to accommodate different needs of different students and it'll be modern housing. Uh, Yeah, I think it's cool that um, they're kind of addressing the problem of how they've kind of accepted too many students, like um, kind of like we talked about last semester. So I, I think that's a good thing. Um, yeah, so they actually talked a lot about this because it's something that has kind of like thrown off housing on campus. Um, and so they said that basically they don't intend to continue to accept that many students to the university. So that in the future, this won't really be as much of an issue according to them. Um, so that they're kind of just drafting plans for a smaller class size now. I remember speaking with a couple North Village um, families in the fall, and one of the things that they really stressed was the interdependence between families. Like, Mm -hmm. if one parent has a class and the other family doesn't, they'll send someone over to, like, watch the kids while someone's in class. So... I'm interested to see how UMass goes about rebuilding that sense of community once these new um, housing units are done that are replacing North Village. Yeah, so that's actually something we talked about because um, I spoke to a resident in North Village who's a graduate student and has been here since 2015 with his family. And he was saying that, you know, his child has come to, like, has become accustomed to living in that community. Um, And I asked about where they'd be moving to, and he talked about how they have basically, um, the university has a rank of how long you've been there and different things like that. Um, That will allow you to have, like, your first pick because they're helping students find new housing, and they're trying to keep the kids in the same school districts. Um, So, like, if they live in North Amherst now, they want to stay in North Amherst. But he also said that there isn't a lot of communication within current residents of North Village about what they plan to do. And so they don't know if they'll be living near the people they've lived near for a long time. So restoring that community, I think a lot of people might graduate um, and 
people who do come back, hopefully the university goes above and beyond and kind of restoring that community for them. But I think as of now, there's no definite plan. I think that they're going to use the committee that they made with students to kind of talk about ways to do that and continuously meet with them. But at the end of the day, people are losing their home and moving out of their community. Uh, It's kind of like how we were just talking about with the schedule. The university has their reasons, but it still affects people's lives. Cool. So um, for our fourth story this week, um, Irina, you wrote about the uh, East Asian Languages and Cultures program. Yeah, so uh, this year the East Asian Languages and Cultures program is celebrating 50 years of being um, a program here at UMass, and it went through a lot of changes since. Um, So it started in 1969, um, and to celebrate, they're putting on a couple of different theatrical events, including a Chinese ritual folk music concert that I think was last week. They're having a roundtable discussion and a concert with traditional Japanese music because the program is mainly centered around Chinese and Japanese language and culture, but they now have a Korean certificate as well. And yeah, it was really interesting to get to talk to some of the professors in the department um, because it's not super well known and it's not a super big department on campus. Um, And I actually got in touch with Alvin Cohen, who is a retired professor who was here way early on when it was just founded. Um, He told me a lot about the history of the program. So it was initially called the Asian Studies Program and it was really small. I think they had like a dozen or less professors and they had so few students that he said that they used to go and literally table like in the campus center for the program which is not really something that you see nowadays we have like the majors fair but it's not quite as just like you know one of the clubs or the sororities that you see that are tabling in the campus center and he also told me that in the 70s it almost got completely scrapped because they got a provost who created this five-year plan and he was planning on cutting this program and I think some of the other languages and humanities programs as well so it's very interesting just to hear that history that we don't really know a lot about from him and yeah yeah I thought was what was especially interesting was like the history and how um how you talked about that former provost how he seemed so like against the program and even to the point where he was like firing deans in the program until I think I think it was the chancellor that stepped in and then fired the provost mm-hmm. and and then the you know the program continued on and stuff yeah what um Mr. Cohen told me was that so he he became the provost he started cutting the budgets and a lot of people were upset about it obviously because a lot of people value the programs here on campus that are maybe not traditionally seen as more like money making and so a lot of people spoke up against it um some of the deans spoke up against it and then what um mr cohen said was that the chancellor at the time went on vacation for a week and he put the provost as like interim chancellor so like he kind of had whatever power that he could or he had the same power as the chancellor for that week and that's how he ended up firing some of the deans and then once the chancellor got back from his vacation and he saw all the stuff that happened he fired the provost and kind of just undid everything so (laughs) kind of crazy to know about and like not a lot of people um obviously hear about this but I got to go to the archives um which are up on the 25th floor of Du Bois and I found like (coughs) an old memo that was sent about it and an old collegian file about it so pretty cool (laughs) Okay, so uh, for our last uh, news story of the week, um, uh, Sophia, do you want to just give like a quick update on elections? Yeah, so the elections timeline for the SGA this year is a little bit different than um, in recent years. It's a little bit more squished and it's happening a little later than usual. So originally 
The elections were supposed to be over by March 12th, as it states in the bylaws, but this bylaw is going to have to be broken because it's not possible given the SGA's recent schedule. Um, they just approved three elections commissioners, so that's been something that's been holding them back in terms of getting everything going with elections. So the new schedule is that February 29th through March 6th is going to be the period of nomination. So this is when candidates will be turning in their nominations forms. And then campaigning is going to take place March 9th through March 13th, which is the week directly before spring break. And then over spring break, campaigning is going to be suspended mostly because they don't want students working on their campaigns and focusing their spring breaks on the elections. And then after campaigning is over, voting is going to take place on the 23rd, the 24th, and the 25th. And this is because the SGA's constitution says that voting has to be over by March 25th. So that's kind of what the whole schedule has centered around because they absolutely cannot break the Constitution. The bylaws can be changed and amended, but the Constitution has to stay as it is. So they've really designed the schedule around having elections over by March 25th. Do you know if during the voting period they can still campaign? Because I think I remember last year a lot of like the campaigning was just going around people and asking them to vote for the people running. So so is that changed at all or... I'm not sure if there's any bylaws that prohibit them from campaigning mm-hmm. during the elections period, but I think that they're encouraged to do most of their campaigning during the campaigning period. I definitely keep an eye out how this is going to affect voter turnout. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember in past years the way some people have voted. I think the way I voted freshman year is a candidate came up to me and said, pull out your phone right now and you can vote. I don't recall if I voted for the person that said it to me, but the <laughs> fact that Students can follow campaigning till March 13th, and then they go home for a week and they come back. If you don't really care about the SGA or don't really keep aware of it, as I think the majority of campus has that opinion of the SGA, not that they don't care about it, but they're just not aware of everything going on and the time we're most aware of the elections. It'll be hard-pressed for students to come back after a week, after having only four days of campaigning, and then make that informed decision on who they want to be in each position. So I wonder if that could be a potential issue, because I think it's 5% of campus has to vote for an election to be valid. Um, In past years, it's been around 10% have voted. I could be a bit off with those numbers, but I do recall it's typically not very high in how many students vote in these elections. Cool. So, um, yeah, we'll we'll have coverage on everything related to the election. I think we do, like, we'll have profiles on every candidate, then we'll have coverage of the SGA debate on... Uh, March 11th, and then um, and we'll cover who wins. But cool. So, uh, so that was our last news story we're talking about this week. But just like every other week, we're gonna go through an older edition. This week, we're doing the March 3rd, 1982 issue of the Collegian. Anything that uh, you guys took note of looking at it? It's funny that SGA elections were happening this week. <laughs> it shows that the timeline really hasn't changed that much from the 80s till now, I guess. Yeah, and it looks like they had actual voting locations for SGA, which is interesting. I mean, I guess obviously because they didn't have the mobile phones that we have now just to vote immediately. But they had them set up, I think, in the dining commons and in some of the residence halls, which is funny. Uh, I found it interesting they were talking about the long-range plan of the university. 
Uh, we are still around the time of year that the university is announcing their big plans for the upcoming year or upcoming years. But I thought it was funny that this is the year they're deciding to make a journalism department. And they talked about com- cutting the communications department. I didn't have to finish the article or look up future ones to know because we still have a communications department. But that's something I wonder how it would go down today if the university started floating cutting a department. Like you mentioned with the Asian languages, that's a department that was almost cut at one point. And I don't know. I'm not sure which departments would be on the chopping block in 2020. (laughs) But I feel like it wouldn't be communications. I probably meet too many communications majors for them to do that. I also noticed reference to the Collegian Women's Department and WMUA, the radio station on campus, developing a women's department, which always just interests me. Because if a women's department was needed, it means that women on campus didn't feel like they were having a voice in the standard newspaper. So it's just always interesting to see. Oh, one thing that I just saw, actually, also, I didn't even know this about the Collegian, but there was a subscription rate. So apparently subscriptions were $18 to the Collegian, I guess, to have, like, the daily paper delivered to you. So that's very interesting that we used to have people, like, paying for the subscriptions i have no idea i wonder what deliveries were like like was it a door-to-door thing did it go to your mailboxes your lobby or did you have to go pick it up if you lived on campus Mm -hmm. but i don't think it's going to say the answer in here but (laughs) it would be cool if we could get in touch with alumni and ask them it's also funny that they've published the dining hall menus (laughs) in the collegian i'm so glad i have my umass dining app now (laughs) Also, around this time, um, the Collegian did the Collegian Classifieds, which is basically like an entire page devoted to um, like announcements from students, like if they are renting an apartment um, or there is a job on campus. And it also includes like personal announcements, which when we were looking through the archives the other day included like people leaving their phone numbers for like someone to find and um, like birthday wishes, which is so interesting to think about like life before the internet because that will be like dropping your number and like the <laughs> like um, overheard at UMass Facebook page and like hoping for results. Just like kind of interesting to see how the relationship with the Collegian has developed over the years. So uh, I think that's all the time we have for now. It was great having everyone listen. Tune in next time. And once again, I'm Will Malice. I'm Cassie McGrath. I'm Catherine Eston. I'm Abby Charpentier. I'm Sophia Gardner. And I'm Irina Kostake. And you've been listening to the Collegian News Hour. The music for this podcast was created by Joaquin Crude and promoted by Audio Library. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating if you enjoyed today's episode. It really helps us out. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.